So I think especially for women, there is nothing that determines more whether someone will be incarcerated than their exposure to trauma and interpersonal trauma in their young lives. It's really difficult to be poor. It's really difficult to live in a space where white supremacy and white body supremacy is the norm. Um, And so there's sort of a confluence of things happening, right? Like you have the intergenerational trauma, you have the the interpersonal trauma that comes from historical disenfranchisement, and then often you have actual experiential trauma. Content warning. This episode will contain discussion of trauma-related events and impacts, including sexual assault, interpersonal or domestic violence, grief, and loss. Hey everyone, welcome back. For these next two episodes, we're going to be talking about trauma. And to help us out with this complex topic, we're going to be joined with an expert in the field, Jacqueline Williams. She is a co-founder for the Michigan Prison Doula Initiative and is currently the program associate at the Michigan Criminal Justice Program of the American Friends Service Committee. Today's episode will be focused on precarceral trauma, while part two will be centered on the impacts of trauma while incarcerated particularly for pregnant women in prison. I'm Bhavna. And I'm Vendela. And this is Women's Health Incarcerated. So through the making of this series, we've noticed a pattern. Many of the women and girls who are caught up in the American incarceration system have suffered from some form of trauma in their past. This falls in line with something called the trauma to prison pipeline. But to really understand that concept, let's first talk about what trauma even is. So what's interesting about, and I know I'm going to say the word trauma about 8,000 times in this, but what's interesting about trauma is that a lot of people think of it uh, is of the actual, or that it is the actual experience that happens, which isn't actually what trauma is. Trauma is the physiological and cognitive reactions to the experience. So when folks say like, you know, it's not what happens to you, it's how you react to it kind of true, um, but how you react to something is often predetermined. And especially if you have, you know, experienced a traumatic event, it is physiologically predetermined. Like, let's just take an example of someone, right? So, you know, this person, Sarah, I'm totally making this up, um, comes from poverty, is a person of color, is from a single parent household, and was molested by an uncle, say, when they were young, or molested by a a member of their family, a trusted person when they were young. The body will respond in such a physiological way um, that when another stimulus like that is introduced, they cannot, the body cannot tell the difference between that thing actually happening again, and like a response that is just initiated by some sort of trigger. Yeah, and a common instance we can look at is with content warnings in the beginning of shows, events, and even this episode. Sometimes, people may find themselves listening or participating in something that will remind them of a past traumatic event, and all of a sudden, their body will react to it. For example, they may start to feel very anxious, and their heart may start racing very fast. They may find it hard to breathe or think clearly. They may literally have an anxiety or panic attack, or a crying attack, or something even more extreme, and they would be unable to control this reaction. We include these warnings to prepare listeners for the topics that may remind them of their past traumas. There's also neurological mechanisms that can explain trauma responses, especially for when we look at individuals with a childhood trauma history or who have experienced adverse childhood experiences, or ACEs. Because when we are children, 
our brains are still very much developing. And part of this developmental process is taking information from our surrounding environment and using that to form different connections between brain regions and brain cells to process this information and inform the way that our body reacts, how we think, etc. So when a child is in a traumatic environment, the brain is actually making certain connections known as fear response pathways. This pathway involves several different brain regions, predominantly the amygdala, which is connected to emotional processing. And it's essentially relating the memory of the trauma with a fear response. And so when this pathway is activated by a stimulus, the response can occur, which explains why seemingly non-threatening cues such as eye contact with another person or a certain classroom environment can cause an individual to react maladaptively or unsuitably, like showing aggression, for example. Although not everyone experiences this or develops a maladaptive response, and these pathways may even be unlearned over time, it's important to know that trauma responses can't simply be explained down to choice. When you experience a trauma trigger and your body reacts, it doesn't even get into your cognitive brain yet. It sits in your limbic reptilian brain and determines, is this a safe thing or not? And if that part of your brain, the the non-thinking, the reptilian part of your brain determines this is not a safe thing, it doesn't even get into your cognitive space. It, it You immediately get into fight, flight, or freeze. That's it. So, you know, when we are working with people who have high, you know, trauma histories, um, and it's a fact that women who are giving birth while incarcerated, or even women who are incarcerated in general, have a higher instance of symptomatic PTSD than veterans returning from war. So we're talking about a hugely traumatized population. We can't talk therapy our way through these things, that this is a, a actual physical reaction that happens in the body. So, you know, fight, flight, or freeze has has sort of been simplistically identified as our, like, limbic and our reptilian reaction to these things. Um, And there's, there's still this very American, very, like, honestly, like, white body supremacy idea that as long as we, like, make a good decision about the reaction that we're gonna have, then we should be fine doesn't even get into that part of our brain where we're actually making like a a rational thinking decision. Right. And this white body supremacy idea that we can control and actively choose all of our responses and reactions goes to show how misunderstood trauma responses have been and how this lack of understanding can lead to serious harm for certain populations. Structural forms of oppression, stigmatization, and discrimination can further traumatize and harm specific communities. So the examples that we've been talking about so far in terms of assault, molestation, and emotional abuse are experiences of interpersonal trauma, which is a trauma that occurs between people. But there's also a form of trauma known as structural trauma. A 2018 research article by Diana Bommel on Creating the Trauma to Prison Pipeline, says that, quote, trauma can encompass more than exposure to a single traumatic event or multiple discrete events. 
repeated and consistent exposure to stress related to oppression, stigma, and discrimination may also lead to trauma because such exposure results in the same kind of neurobiological, psychological, and social repercussions as interpersonal trauma. Structural trauma, sometimes called structural violence or structural vulnerability, can thus be defined as trauma that results from structural forms of oppression and discrimination. End quote. There are so many disparities in our society, whether it be in healthcare, in education, in job opportunity, or in what we're here to talk about, the legal system. The ways in which our society is set up structurally through legislation, policies, and other social, political, and economic practices very much discriminates against individuals of certain identities and from certain communities. This then causes these individuals to experience trauma, which ultimately perpetuates the same cycle of oppression. For example, according to the National Association of County and City Health Officials, structural forms of racism and discrimination exist when considering who has access to housing, education, and employment rights in their society, as well as in sentencing and incarceration policies. Like it's proven that black people do not use drugs more often than white people. But it's also shown by the numbers that most people who are targeted or penalized for drug offenses by our legal system are black. In fact, according to the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, or the NAACP, quote, African Americans and whites use drugs at similar rates, but the imprisonment rate of African Americans for drug charges is almost six times that of whites, end quote. This is a clear example of how structural racism influences our legal policies and systems. Even when looking at the incarceration rates of women and girls, we see that those who are poor and who are of color, particularly black women and girls, are disproportionately impacted. And this isn't because the number of criminal offenses by women of color varies significantly from those by white women. Rather, women and girls of color are more likely to be targeted and detained. This is what the concept of structural trauma refers to. There is such a stark differentiation between people who look like me, who are privileged, and people who come from communities, you know, that are historically impoverished or disenfranchised or communities of color, um, that people from my community cannot even imagine what it's like to go into prison. They can't imagine a world where they had to steal to eat or fight to live, um, which, you know, lucky them, I guess. But if you are not paying attention to the most vulnerable communities, if you're not paying attention to the people in your own state even um, who have it the worst, then you're really not paying attention and you're really not being, in my mind, the kind of citizen that you should be. Again, we as Americans think this was all your choice. This was your decision. You made this choice. You didn't have to do this. Um, And ignoring every single intercept point that has led up to this, you know, we have cases of abuse and incest that would just turn your stomach really, really, really difficult things that have happened in people's childhood. And so they self-medicate because they're not being medicated any other way because they're not given counseling. They're not like given these body practices that they can do. They're not, you know, accepted into supportive housing facilities. There's nothing like that in their community. So they take drugs because drugs are very effective. 
drugs are really good at making things go away for a while. And in order to survive, that's what people need sometimes. Um, like I am a, a harm reduction type person. I don't believe that strict abstinence should keep people out of services and supportive housing. Um, and, you know, while I would love to imagine a world where people don't need to use drugs or alcohol to feel better, that's not the world that we're in. Really, what we see um, when we're talking to folks in prison is that the people who do the most harm are the people who have been the most harmed. Um, and that is, like, structurally... Uh, through through disenfranchisement, through systemic racism, through institutional violence, but also interpersonally. Um, you rarely you know, speak with someone who is inside who may be having trouble with empathy development or something like that, where you can't draw an actual line back to maybe the foster care system that they were in. Maybe they were in 25 different foster homes. They had food insecurity throughout them, some abuse. Um, or, you know, interpersonal violence with a parental figure, a, um, you know, someone close to the family, or just general street violence that might happen because they live in, you know, in a, a high crime area that is surrounded by poverty and lack of resources. Research shows that 86% of incarcerated women have experienced sexual abuse at some point in their lives. Additionally, 77% of incarcerated women report being victims of intimate partner violence, and 60% report being victims of abuse and violence by their caregivers. And the patterns persist for girls involved in juvenile justice systems in regards to their higher rates of mental illnesses and sexual and physical assault histories. So clearly, there is a relationship between trauma and the U.S. incarceration system. Exactly. The trauma to prison pipeline is what this intersection is about, and it refers to the criminalization of individuals, particularly low-income girls and girls of color, for behaviors which stem from their early traumatic experiences. Yes, there are definitely cases in which men and young boys have been exposed to trauma throughout their lives that could have influenced their involvement in the legal system. However, as Deanna Baumel mentions in her research, quote, Girls are particularly affected by the pipeline because they are a faster-growing population in the justice system. They are much more likely to experience multiple and intersecting forms of trauma, they tend to be punished more harshly for their reactions to trauma, and their needs are less likely to be met by the system once they become justice-involved." There are obviously layers of abuse, um, but women are far more likely to be victims of sexual assault and they're far more likely to be victims of like interpersonal assault and violence with people in their like close circles. Um, so let's, you know, if we, if we just back up and talk about um, like the precarceral lives of people and poverty, like historic poverty, historic disenfranchisement, um, these are risk factors of assaults, right? Part of it is because the um, adults in the lives of I'm, – I'm talking essentially about, like, children and youth who are being assaulted, but par partially because the adults are also traumatized adults um, because there is toxic stress in a household where basic needs can't get met because we are um, – because our like adrenal systems are elevated, um, our cortisol is elevated, our our trauma responses are elevated. 
not just in our like immediate home settings, but in our communities, right? So there's like a there's a lack of safety that like develops in these communities, um, especially among you know like disenfranchised, impoverished, systemically oppressed communities like indigenous communities um there's a higher instance of incest there's a higher instance of sexual assault although among white communities too there is it's it's much more insidious and it's much less talked about um but there are really high rates especially among impoverished communities of like sexual assault and abuse these incredibly high rates of precarceral sexual assault and violence brings us back to the point of trauma reactions and what they entail because that's really how people get targeted by the legal system. So trauma reactions are deeply person-specific. They can range from an inability to regulate emotions to substance abuse, hyperarousal, self-harm and self-destructive behaviors, and avoidance. These reactions vary in severity for each individual and can sometimes even lead to a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder. And it's true that not everybody who has experienced trauma will engage in behaviors that may seem maladaptive in certain situations. There are various factors that can go into this, like someone's genetic predisposition, biology, environment, access to intervention and support programs, social and cultural identities, and the list can go on and on and on. But the more trauma that somebody is exposed to, especially in childhood, the more likely these individuals may exhibit trauma reactions for longer periods of time. And what's really important to stress here is that these reactions, maladaptive or not, are self-protective and can even be completely out of one's conscious control due to various physiological changes in the body. And yet, these very reactions are heavily criminalized in our society. So I would, I would argue, and I'm trying to think back into all of the many, many conversations I had, that I have never met someone who has not at least had some form of abuse and violence in their lives who is pregnant in prison. Um, be it with a domestic partner. Um, there's a lot of victims of domestic violence in these sorts of settings, um, be it with parents or be it just institutionally in school, um, you know, being constantly berated, you don't have your homework done, you're falling asleep on the desk, you're, you know, doing a lot of things that um, children in Im impoverished communities or who have interpersonal violence will like demonstrate. And then you are being punished by the school. You're either kicked out of the school or your parents could be arrested for you being truant. All of these things compound onto like what trauma actually looks like. So, you know, there are some things that we can specifically pinpoint, say a family member or a, a close friend abused you sexually, say you were hit or struck by your parents, say you were experienced food insecurity, um, transitional housing, homelessness, you were kept in foster care. You know, these are things that we can, that they're, they're called ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. Um, and, you know, we can, we can point to these specific ones. These ACEs are the kinds of experiences we've been talking about so far when trying to explain what kinds of situations or events could lead someone to experience trauma, and how that kind of trauma could impact them later in life. One of the ways that girls are criminalized for their trauma reactions is through status offenses, which are actions that are considered unlawful only because of an individual's age as a minor. For instance, 
Running away is a classic example of avoidance if an individual feels that a certain setting or person is dangerous, but it's often targeted as delinquent behavior in young women. Substance abuse is also a common trauma reaction. Drugs and alcohol are typically used by individuals to self-medicate. But even substance abuse is heavily criminalized in our legal system, and not just in the context of trauma, but widely throughout the criminal legal system. It's something that's treated like criminal behavior instead of like a mental health concern that requires rehabilitation resources. When you look at who is being disproportionately incarcerated in our society, poor people and youth, people of color, women of color, these are the same individuals who are experiencing multiple and intersectional forms of trauma. What we end up doing is take these traumatized individuals and place them in a space that creates further trauma. And in doing so, we have created a cycle that ignores the trauma of these folks and instead focuses on their individual actions. We look at folks in America especially, and we think we have put this like huge amount of like profundity on individualism and individual choices and how we can all sort of just like pick ourselves up by our bootstraps and like get to the place we need to go. It's just not the case. Um, I think it was Martin Luther King who, yes, I will do that right now, but Martin Luther King who's like, it's ludicrous to tell someone to pick themselves up by their bootstraps when they're not wearing any boots, right? Like we have allowed ourselves to believe that individual choice is what determines um, behaviors and incarceration status and so many other things um, when we have not even begun to address the amount of damage that has been done by like white body supremacy and enslavement of people of color and, you know, indigenous atrocities, you know, all of these things that still affect all of our bodies in ways that we are just beginning to understand. Um, it's a really... <laughs> It's, it's a, probably a larger topic than a podcast topic. It's like a several novel topic. Um, and I am not trying to say that nobody, you know, that, that people who are in prison are not at fault for the things that they've done. Um, I'm putting like quotes around fault. But again, the people who are often doing the most harm are the people who have been the most harmed. And we are, um, we are like at a point now in this country where we're facing just like the absolute epidemic, the absolute crisis, public health crisis, public safety crisis, everything else of mass incarceration, where we really have to start recognizing that all of these people aren't just bad people. Like we have to take away this idea of American individualism and start recognizing from the beginning when we began enslaving people of color and, um, you know, pouring all of our resources into like corporate capitalism that serious harm has been done through generations. So we're not we're not at the apology point yet. Like we need to actually make a recognition of these things that have happened and start to like try to heal ourselves in our own bodies and recognize that like other bodies, especially bodies of color have been affected by our white bodies and by the trauma that we have like instilled. So as you've hopefully gotten to understand in this episode, there's a clear relationship between trauma and the incarceration system. And not only that, but structural racism and discrimination intersects with trauma to cause certain populations to be more heavily incarcerated. But precarceral trauma is just the beginning of this conversation. Join us next week as we delve more deeply into intergenerational trauma 
and get more insight into trauma caused by the incarceration system and what implications this has for pregnant women behind bars in particular. Until then... Women's Health Incarcerated works to raise awareness about the experiences of women within our current incarceration system, with a primary focus on health-related issues. The podcast can be found on both Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and if you want to learn more about our episodes, view the transcripts to see where we get our information, or find different ways that you could get involved, please visit www.winkthemovement.org. That's www.whincthemovement.org.